All right, welcome to Garage Night. It is December 9th of 2019. Um, so let's go ahead and start with rides. Uh, Jeff, you've been working on that Chevy some more. Got that suspension you were mentioning uh, last week with the Land Land Rover parts, I believe. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I just got that uh, together this weekend. I had a long weekend, a three-day weekend, and I took uh, Friday off and just started getting cracking at it. Um, I probably spent, I don't know, 12 hours uh, Friday and Saturday um, each day on it. And then uh, probably about six, seven hours on Sunday, got it together, got it driving. And uh, man, it was way better. Like first shot out of the gate, you know, not even having dialed it in yet really. And um it, it drives really, really nice, way better than the Leaf Springs. Um, I mean, it was, it's, it's night and day better. It, it, it rides nice. It takes bumps. Well, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty stoked with it so far. So long arms, uh, coilovers and, uh, what else, what else does that consist of? Cause it was just a, was it a three link in the back? No, it was the, a, uh, it was a, so it was a uh, just a parallel leaf spring suspension with uh, had uh, it was a seven leaf pack and um, they were super slider leaves uh, from from Posey's uh, Rod and Custom and uh, you know it, it rode okay it was pretty soft and you know you get into a corner and it would kind of feel a little disjoint in the rear um, you didn't really notice it too much because you kind of expect that from an old car. Um, but the second you drive it and it doesn't have that, which is kind of the way it is now, you immediately like realize that, wow, this is way better. This, this feels like an actual like car, you know, it feels like a modern, uh, modern rear suspension. It doesn't, it's just really planted now. It's, it's amazing. The difference, it doesn't have that really lazy kind of, um, lateral motion that it had before. Um, So no axle wrap, no, uh, yeah no kind of the axle moving in and out of the track no it's it's solid it it doesn't it doesn't wrap up and it doesn't move laterally anymore um i can do burnouts all day and i don't get any chatter um it uh it, it it's super smooth over on even terrain you know i was a little concerned that it might um you know you might get some of that sway bar effect with the trailing arms in the rear and um it doesn't it doesn't really have that it's uh you know, I parked it up on a uh, curb and just to, just to kind of test it out and it seemed pretty nice. And, um, you know, it definitely does, uh, handle really flat. So, uh, I mean, uh, it, it, you know, the, before the front suspension felt really dialed in, but now the rear feels better than the front does. So, um, it, it almost feels like I need to improve the front again. Maybe, maybe I could throw, I have a front sway bar that I took off. I could maybe throw that back on to kind of balance it out. But, um, yeah, it, it, it drives, uh, it drives way better. And the, and the NVH on the, on the freeway is probably, uh, 50% of what it was. Um, it's, you can all, is it because there's less squeaks or does it ride that much better and soak up the bumps better that it doesn't make the, the other, the knocks and things, or is it just a squeak from the old bushings? Well, so the uh, so the the leaf springs weren't the noisy part of of the suspension beyond the the axle hitting and wrapping up the um, the the issue with the old setup was the actual axle itself was um, 
was pretty wasted. The bearings inside the axle were, were all bad. Um, the pinion bearing had about a, a eighth of an inch of play in it. And, um, you know, it's funny, you know, you, you took that axle and you looked at it, right. Like just visually and you walk up on it and it looked clean. Like it looked, yeah, I pulled it out of the junkyard. It had, it still had factory paint on it. You know, it looked like a really good axle. Um, where it, but inside it was just junk. It was just trashed, you know? And, um, I never pulled the axle shafts out of it. It, it had good fresh looking seals in it. So I was like, well, it, I don't need to pull it apart, you know, and, and the tooth pattern was okay. The wear pattern on the teeth. But, um, when I actually started, you know, after, after I started noticing noise and, and I looked a little closer at it, you could see a lot of the, uh, like the bearings were just had tons of play. And then the, you know, I pulled the axle shafts out or scored up really bad. And, um, so, you know, inside it was not, not very happy. Um, so I got this other axle out of a junkyard, uh, you know, Explorer axles are, are pretty much a dime a dozen. So I picked this thing up 200 bucks and, um, it looks like it was pulled from the bottom of an ocean, you know, just covered in surface rust, just looks nasty. looks like it fit the Chevy pretty great. Um, and at this time, you know, I'm like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go cruise on up to a drivetrain shop, have them check out the axle before I get so far into this where I'm welding on it. And I'm, and I'm, and I build my whole suspension around this housing and to find out the insides are bad. Um, and, and just to cl be clear, like, to rebuild the inside of one of these axles, it needed so much, uh, that, that old axle, it needed axle shafts, it needed bearings, it needed a clutch kit. And it was, you know, just in parts, I was looking at over a thousand dollars. So, so I, you know, for 200 bucks, I went and bought, picked this thing up and I took it to a uh, patent drivetrain and they said, you know, oh yeah, no, it, you know, he's like, if, if it were mine, I'd run it. He said the everything looked really good. Bearings will look really good. The axles had a little bit of wear, but beyond that, they were okay. So I said, oh, let's, let's, let's run it then. And, um, so I, uh, I hauled it home with me and, um, you know, just wire peeled it up, took all the brackets off, you know, and started, uh, mocking up the suspension and, uh, and the mounts. And Excellent. Everything. That's going to be a disc brake 8.8. Um, with what type of rear end gears in that? Is that four tens or is that three seven threes? It's a three seventy three with lemon slip. Um, you know, and it's and it's like within half an inch of the factory width axle. So um, a lot of guys are, I think, leery to to run them because of the offset pinion. Uh, it's got a two inch pinion offset, which, believe it or not, really does make a difference on these cars because of the drive shaft tunnel is not very wide. So if you don't do some clearancing on the drive shaft tunnel, you'll hit your Opinion on the drive shaft tunnel. Um, so, did you have to do some some high tech hammering to uh, to try and line that up? Then <laughs> it was more like high tech cutoff wheel and uh, reshape it. Um, I did that before with the Leafs, but um, you know it's riding at about the same height that it was riding the Leafs right now, maybe a little lower, and it uh, does not have any of the uh, issues it had with the Leafs where the where the axle was wrapping up and hitting the floor under load. Um, the issue with the Leafs was, um, was so bad that uh, I had to actually shim the axle down and get the pinion angle to basically an incorrect angle just to not smash the pinion into the, into the floor. And, and at the point I had clearanced the floor enough to where um, I was starting to get into kind of the passenger seat area where I was like, okay, this is, this is going to be a problem, you know, down the road and affect comfort at some point if I keep cutting the floor up. So I was hoping by the time I was done with this whole suspension and had it on the road that I wouldn't have to tunnel the drive shaft anymore. 
Um, and because of the adjustment I built in the suspension, if I decide to go lower, I'll probably have to tunnel it. But right now I have a, a reasonable amount of clearance. I've been driving it for a couple of days now. I think both the, yeah, see, I drove it yesterday, tonight, and then Sunday. I haven't hit the drive shaft yet, and I've been pretty hard on it. Um, so it seems and not to... having quadrabind, it's not gonna, it's not gonna want to angle up and hit like it. That's what it was doing before. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was just wrapping that axle right around itself. Um, you know, that's, and, and you know, the the quick solution to that is, you know, of course, traction bars, but that doesn't solve your lateral condition. So you're by the time you're done, you know, you're looking at leaf springs traction bars and uh, uh and then a panhard bar and really the way that everything was configured on the axle the way i'd set it up originally wasn't really conducive to adding a panhard bar there was not really any place for it to go um so i decided that you know the best way to address this was to actually like let's design a solution and let's make this thing work right um you know what I mean? That's always the best way to go is, is the right way. Not the, the short cutting, cutting corners way doesn't usually work because you end up spending hundreds of dollars cutting corners. And then at the end of the day, you decide, you know what, this still isn't going to work and I'm going to need to, I'm going to need to do it right anyway. And then you're just way off. Totally. Yeah. No. And, and I, um, I definitely uh, contemplated going the quick way, you know, like I was thinking, Hey, you know, I can, I can just throw the Leafs back on and have this thing on the road tomorrow. But I said, you know, I, I really, in my gut, I was like, you know, I'm not going to be happy with it. My dad's like, you know, oh, you just th throw it back together, you know, get it back on the road. It's like, it was fine. And even you were like, you know, oh, it drove great. It handled great. And I'm like, mm, meh, you know, like I was, I'm happy with all my other Leaf spring cars, my, my Bronco and my Falcons. But I was not happy with the Chevy. Um, it didn't, it didn't do what I wanted it to do. And, uh, you know, I'm not super picky about handling, but when, when it's, I, I'm picky about balance, um, uh, more than I am anything else. And if the, if the car isn't balanced to power to front and rear to any of that, I'm not going to be very happy. Um, and it felt like the front end was a lot better than the back end of that car. And, um, so between that, between the axle wrap and the smacking of the drive shaft into the rear of the floor, like I was just kind of like, I was kind of over the leaf spring thing on this car for a while. I said, let's, let's just try something different. And it wasn't astronomically expensive to do this. You know, I bought a, I bought some steel. Um, I had all the stuff at work to cut it and drill it and do all that. You know, I bought some hardware, which was actually surprisingly expensive. And I, uh, and then the coilovers, um, you know, were probably the most expensive piece. And then, you know, of course I had to run some new brake line and, you know, get pads and all that stuff. So, um, um, anyway, uh, yeah, it, 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 it was, uh, it was worthwhile to do all this. Excellent. Well, I mean, the good news is that the back suspension is all figured out and done. Bad news is that the, uh, front suspension is now, absolutely useless and horrible and you need to start from scratch i feel that way it's actually pretty good still, but i i feel that way for sure i uh i you know i, I get in it and the, and the back end it doesn't make any noise it, it feels really solid the front end it just feels a little bit looser than i'd like um you know and i think i'm sure one day i'll, I'll have to address that um, I wasn't very happy with the front end as delivered uh, anyway. Because the front end is that kind of uh, remanufactured kind of Mustang 2 mm -hmm. 
um, geometry, but that's the one that you had to re-weld all the uh, stuff you bought anyway. Mm-hmm. So how, how is it that you say that it's loose? Does it feel like like there's too much hesitation between turning the wheel and it reacting? No, it's it's so like the what I noticed the biggest, uh, or, or I guess the thing I, that's most glaring is going over bumps. I can feel flex where I shouldn't, if that makes sense. Um, it feels like something isn't quite buttoned up, and like some loose bolts somewhere. It feels like if it feels like, and it and it is because I saw this before I even put the body on the car, and I just had the engine in it. Um, I, it feels like, uh, the suspension is kind of, is kind of giving in a way that it shouldn't like, like imagine if you had a, um, like it it feels like the frame is basically flexing, uh, around the suspension, if that makes sense, like, or maybe something's under damped. I don't know. Um, it just, it feels a little, uh, it just feels a little off. But, um, you know, back when I had put this, I had the frame on the ground, I had the engine, I had the suspension, and I would, I would jump up and down on it, and I could watch the spring hats move ever so slightly, um, which didn't ever really sit well with me. Um, I talked to a few people about it. They, they seemed to be like, yeah, it's not a big deal. You know, it's not like, you know, it's not like they were moving um, independently of the frame. I mean, the frame was twisting a little bit, so it just, just doesn't... The, d- the design, the way that that whole front suspension's built, it doesn't feel very robust. And of course, the, um, you know, all of your braking loads go through that, your turning loads go through that. So um, it takes well, a third substantial suspension amount. is the charm. So what, what do you yeah. think you would do different? Um, I would look into uh, probably a Lexus SC400 front suspension, or I would just do my own. Uh, thing similarly based on the Mustang 2 because of the narrow track width um, but build it myself in a way that I feel would anchor to the frame in a more uh, robust way so a little so you less think you can kind of just modify the idea that they that they had and you think you just can do a little bit better because you have an engineering background you are an engineer so that's kind of would be in your wheelhouse is to make revisions and make revisions until you can, you know, over-engineer it into what you want it to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination a suspension engineer or, you know, a vehicle dynamics engineer, but um, I know enough to be probably dangerous. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just learning, just learning about it, you know, um, over the last couple of years as I started this project. So, um, I didn't know anything about it at the beginning and I was, I was, you know, my boss and he used to design car suspensions and, um, he, he one of our, uh, one of my coworkers used to work for a race car company called thought engineering. Um, they made, uh, make or made, I don't know if they're still in business, uh, a Corvette suspension and the dude is nothing short of, uh, brilliant. So anyway, he, um, <laughs> He, uh, he, he kind of gave me some advice on, on what to do, what not to do with the car. And, uh, and, um, you know, he gave me a, uh, he gave me a, a book by Herb Adams called, uh, uh, race car vehicle dynamics or something like that. And so I read a little bit of that, um, did some more, 
uh, reading. I bet that's on. a page turner. Oh yeah, you read with, with excitement around every corner. What's going to happen next? Yeah, yeah, it's totally a page turner. But it, it is amazing some of the things that that come that that uh, affect suspension. It, it it was enough to know that I didn't want to mess with it at the time I started this project. I was too nervous, you know, and I was I'd never done really any substantial amount of welding before or any of the stuff. So I was like, uh, man, do I really do I really want to take on this? Uh, next step. And I, and, I, and I think at the time, I'm glad I didn't because I think I might have failed um, in that way. Like I may not have done something right and I would have probably redone it anyway. Um, so I'm kind of happy I went the way I did. It, it seemed like it was the, the path of least resistance at the time. It got my car on the road. I got a little more confident throughout the project in my abilities. And then I, I tackled something that was a little more intense. All right. Excellent. Um, I guess next we'll we'll jump into uh, some cars that Andy and I once had. I'll start with the Bullet. I had a uh, 2001 Bullet. I bought it. I bought it with pretty low, pretty low miles. It had 58,000 when I bought it. No, 38,000 miles when I bought it because I sold it with 69. So there's just no way. So I bought it with 39,000 miles on it. It uh, only had a couple of mods on it when I first got it. Uh, and then it had two more when I sold it uh, seven years later. So it just had a true cold air intake going into the fender with a K&N. Uh, had BBK shorty headers. It had um, a Hypertech tuner and um, monitor on it which was a neat little piece of kit that didn't work super well uh, and then let's see on top of that i added the uh mach 1 style grill and uh lip spoiler am i missing anything boys or is that about it you uh you yeah you deleted the dome light <laughs> yeah so the dome light never worked on the car it was in pretty good shape worked well except that the, the open the door that thing just never worked we checked the bulbs i remember we checked the bulbs one night and, and the fuses and everything else and the fuses and we put the multimeter up inside where the bulbs go to make sure it was getting power and it wasn't and that's about as far as we got because it was somewhere between the fuses and the actual dome light which means getting into the interior and anyone who's had a new edge knows if you uh you take the interior out it's gonna rattle you liked yours not rattling it was a new edge that didn't rattle andy did you ever have any luck with putting a new edge together and not getting rattles you did it a dozen times everything rattles that car had a great exhaust note yeah it was it was nice it wasn't loud but it had it had kind of a, a deep tone to it and it just it sounded good all the way to, to to its red line it definitely could have uh you know handling wise i think uh you know those tires it uh it really hooked pretty good you know um it was a little interesting versus you know driving your 540i the the steering feel i mean and i think this is true of most mustangs did not have that uh that neutral kind of balanced feel that you get with your bmw it had more of a uh I want to say Darty uh, was kind of the characteristic where it would want to follow the ruts a little bit more 
um, potentially. But uh, once you set it into a corner, it would really hook and really handle well. Yeah, I didn't like that initial lean that it would have. It would because you had to really have the the guts and the knowledge to throw it in to get it to set. I never liked that about it. I didn't know if that was the uh, the dual rate springs or what, because it had the the kind of progressive springs, but it it got a little bit stiffer at the end. I wonder if that's what was going on. Well, I think in most cases, uh, a little bit of body roll um, helps uh, set the car into the corner. You know, you're transferring your weight to that outside edge where you're getting the most grip anyway. Um, you know, you're 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 transferring that force into more of a normal force on the tire versus a like lateral force. Uh, I, I think there's something to do with, with that, um, going on, uh, when you, when you have a little bit of body roll. Um, so, you know, some of that actually is, is a good thing. Um, you know, just like a lot of the, like my Fox body was a great example when it was, when I first, uh, before I did the things I did to it. Um, of of why having a, a stiff front suspension isn't always a good thing you know when you you get into a corner it would push really bad it wouldn't it wouldn't allow the car to roll into the corner and that was you know combination of multiple things um, wrong with my car but your car didn't really have that your car seemed to have a little bit of uh, of kind of a little bit of that old school feel where you'd have that little bit of of roll and allowed it to set down in the corner a little bit uh, you know if you're if you're sawing the wheel back and forth you know that's going to obviously upset the car but um you know for what we were doing i think that made it actually handle probably pretty well yeah because the car had uh subframe connectors but they were like really the bottom of the food chain they were bolt-in short length which basically connected one part of the uh of the um floor to the other part of the floor and didn't really it got just to the edges of the two subframes and it, you know it's just not as strong as the weldons especially the weldons that go they were they were better than than nothing on on that platform you think there was a noticeable difference having those boltons because you've you have a lot more experience with new edges yeah so the, it's noticeably different going from nothing like the Fobra had nothing originally to the bullet. You could feel the difference. You know, it was significantly better with the Boltons. And then when I added the Weldons on mine, it's even noticeably stiffer from that point on too. I mean, it's better than having nothing. You know, it's a nice, a nice notch, you know, for a special package, you know, a special trim package on it. Yeah. And you, you ended up getting full length Weldons or shorties. Yes. I did the full length weld in so it ties the the rear subframe all the way to the front subframe that welds in and then it ties in your seat pan at the front seats as well with brackets that you bolt to the seat pan and then weld to the subframe connectors. See that's that's the right way to go, I think. Um I know Jeff and I have had this conversation. I, I'm not sure if we've had you in on it before. Um is there a point where we stiffen the, the chassis too far for what these uh, more plebeian non-race cars are supposed to be where we start upsetting what the suspension is capable of by taking away that uh, movement. What do you think? 
Stiffening it wise, the only way you can really go wrong on a new edge is doing aftermarket upper control arms. Because at that point, you get the notorious quadrabind. That the 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 too far point, you know, going with you know solid built upper control arms on that, all, that is what created too much of a bind in the system and didn't give it enough play. And that's kind of where I ended up with that car before I got to modify that was, is, that was the issue I was having with it is I never got to the point where I was going to take those out and put the, you know, go to the, the pan hard setup instead of the, the upper control arm setup. So let's say a guy goes out, buys a O2 GT bone stock, uh, five speed, um, You've built, you know, first the Fobra, now the Cobra. We'll get to the to the Fobra soon. Um, if you were to do three suspension things, I mean, obviously for handling, you start with good tires. Start with good tires and everything else will fall in line. Um, as I remember, tires, subframe connectors, and then what do you think would be the next thing that would give you the best bang for your buck? So if, if you're going to go three, you know, tires, I, I would say kind of a must, you know, if you were going to do three, including, you know, like tires, which is kind of really mandatory because nothing factory on those cars was worth a dang. So I would say one tires, a decent set of tires, two, you know, one, two, three at this point, I would go full coilovers all the way around, uh, full length welded subframe connectors. And probably um, bang for the buck wise, I would say the, um, you know, the solid lower control arms. That's going to get rid of, you know, a lot of your deflection in the, the you know, in the, in the chassis and it's going to stiffen everything up, you know, probably best as far as bang for your buck. Obviously, you could spend more money and do more while you're there, but if you want to spend minimal and get the most out of it getting into a new, you know, new to you GT from that era. And otherwise you go up a little bit higher, it's going to be, uh, you know, high performance coilovers, pan hard bar, um, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Get rid of the, yeah. Go to the, the pan hard with the torque arm, ditch the front, you know, the heavy front K member, go to a tubular front K member and better, bigger sway bars would be the next kind of step up from that. One one thing about the bullet is it had those three twenty sevens versus you know a lot of people were running three fifty fives or more likely three seven threes in the enthusiast uh, categories with those cars. So Jeff, you've you've always been running two seventy threes in your Fox body, and you ended up upgrading to the three twenty sevens, which is where I was at, and um, I had always been wanting to move up a little bit. How do you how do you feel like that kind of changed how the torque feels versus how much it actually improved the performance of the car? Do you think there was a give and take there? Um, I I personally, uh, based on the cam profile of the stock, you know, the stock cam and the stock heads and everything. I mean, my my engine's basically just a stock engine with an intake. Um, I think the two seventy threes work better for a stock five liter uh, Mustang. 
Uh, I think if you if I were to throw heads or a cam on it, I think the 327s would work better moving that power band up a little bit and being able to take advantage of that gear. But stock, the power band is so low in those cars. I mean, really, it's off idle to 4,000 RPM. Um, you, by going to that higher gear, and granted, a 327 isn't a super tall gear for a, for a Mustang, at least. Um, you're you're kind of losing out on the on the uh, on the torque and that that off idle torque that you get um, with the five liter. Uh, I I felt seat of my pants more torque with the 273s than I do with the 327s. Not to say it's not faster with the 327s. I really wouldn't know. Um, I never really did anything to to give that a, a like a measurable metric, but um, I think that uh, uh, seat of the pants it does not feel as grunty as it did with the 273s. That said, I do get to go through more gears. I have more. Uh, I get to put the power band where I want it now, kind of like you know where my RPMs are at. I'm in a little bit more control of that versus you know with the 273 is first first gear is uh, you know. Uh, 50, 50 miles an hour, second gear is 70, 75 miles an hour, third gear, you're looking at jail speed, you know? So, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of room for, you know, banging gears and, and having a good time. You were basically, you know, one, two and, and, uh, oh, time to go to jail, you know, type thing. So, um, yeah, that's one reason I never ended up switching out the gears that, and because I just don't mod my cars as it turns out, <clears throat> it does turn out that way. When I would go to the track to uh, to the drag strip, because that's about what we had was Portland International Speedway is the one time we didn't have to look over our shoulders. And so we, we did plenty of runs there, lots of good times. But I was able to run a pretty consistent uh, 13.9 at 100 or 101, which was top of third. Um, so I would get I would cross the line with less than 100 rpms to go it was just right there and i knew if i went 355s i would have to shift but i would be a little bogged because i know my three to four is a little bit feels like a bigger gap uh than some of my other shifts and i felt like i would actually lose time in the quarter for what it's worth and so that's one reason i uh never put that on the top of my priority list was was gears because I, I felt like it would actually hurt me in the the one thing I actually kept track of. You you may have if without anything else you may have lost you know maybe a tenth or so possibly you know if you were to do that, but if you were to play with the tire combination with the gears you would significantly pick up. I would have I would have thought. Yeah, no, no way to know for sure now. But I know putting those tires on was a was a give and take that I I ended up the same because I I started with uh, so the wheels when I bought it were aftermarket uh, torque thrusts. When I got on the Mustang forum, uh, I called them uh, Shelby's and uh, Cobras, and that was not accurate. Even though it had a just had a little center cap with a Cobra on it, and me not knowing anything, called them Cobra wheels and was shouted down and that's how i got to meet everyone on superior um welcome to welcome to the 10 year life of the fobra yeah exactly <laughs> and so uh when when i bought it it had 10 and a half inch wheels in the back so nine in the front 10 and a half in the back um 
and they had stretched some uh, two uh, 275s over the backs. So 245 in the front, 275 in the back. And it was it was really bad, guys. If, if you remember how it looked, they, they would come in at almost a 45-degree angle to the tread. Yeah, they were they were stretched out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the right hand tool <laughs> would have been to put some more normal width wheels on there. I didn't realize they came with eights uh stock. Um, but I really liked the wheels. They were an anth- anthracite torque thrust with a polished lip, just gorgeous little seventeens and and I really liked them. And to get the flat sidewall, I put 315 wide series tires on a 260 horsepower car turns out that's stupid because even today you know vipers and uh, z06 camaro uh, camaros and such are right now running 305s and 315s with six seven hundred horsepower so i don't think i needed that and it i thought the better tires going from all seasons to uh netto triple fives was going to get me a better launch and i got better grip it was better but at the track the extra weight of the tire or whatever it was i ran the exact same times i was actually up in the 14 ones at first learned how to launch again back down to 13 9 and only once did i get a 13 8 at 101 before i sold it but that was it I was consistent for seven years, no matter what I did. Consistency is the name of the game. Yeah, just to that point where I just needed a helmet, which was fun. It was, it was nice because it was right on par with with your car, Andy, which we we teased and uh, there was the YouTube of uh, mm-hmm. last week. Tell us about the Fobra. I want I want to hear everything from the from the top. Oh, so I, I think the only logical place is to start with when I got it in, let's see, it would have been 04. God, I think I got that car. It was only four years old when I got it. <laughs> Just, I never really thought of it. It was in 2000 and I got it in 04. And it had like 80,000 on miles on it at that point, I think. And it was kind of a... A little bit of a hand basket at first, but um, I think the most the most notable and probably memorable thing was when I originally got it. This was back in the original Fast and Furious days. Remember the uh, the old Alteza taillights that were on that car? Randy and I know I know you know for a fact how those uh, how those ended up. Oh, they met their demise at the at the muzzle of a twelve gauge shotgun. But yeah, that car. I mean, I can't tell you how many different iterations that car had seen as far as body, chassis, suspension. Well, how long did you just drive it? Because you you got it and then you went to to college uh, just a ways south of Portland, and uh, and you were there for a couple of years before you really started modding it. Yeah, it, we didn't really do a lot at first with it. Um, you know, so it was you know, a lot of my high school card, not a lot of money at the time, so we didn't really do a lot. I had put um, um, just a, a, a cat back exhaust on it, and a cold air intake was really about all that 
that I had really done to it for probably four or five years until I got done with college and back up to Portland area. Um, you know, and it was pretty underpowered. We did, no, you know, I take that back. You know, the second year I was down there, we did do a little bit of a reboot on the top end. Um, Didn't you do a Bama tune on it? Yeah, we, yeah, I did end up doing a tune, um, probably around 07 or 08. We did, um, I put a, I put a comp cam in it and basically ported, ported the heads, ported the intakes, um, you know, just, um, you know, new rock, new rockers, springs, all that kind of, um, a little bit of a, you know, more free flowing, you know, head setup on it. Um, you know, we are talking about a B6, so we know kind of how trivial it probably was at that point, but not at, hey, time. Whatever. at the time you were having fun and you were actually working on your car. Unlike some other people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. At the time this was, you know, the, 9904 GTs were still, you know, 15, 16,000 at this point, you know, not even close to attainable. Yeah, exactly. And we won't even talk about a Terminator, you know. Terminator is the uh, 03 and 04 supercharged Cobras that they that they had. They called them the Terminators. Yeah. Yeah. And so basically that's where we were. You know, there's a lot of takeoff options and whatnot for swapping around, but yeah, you know, we were, it's pretty much, you know, set with it. Um, <clears throat> so that was kind of, you know, the platform I decided to work off of and, you know, like pretty much fell in love with it and just kind of kept working on it, you know, changing things here and there, here and there. And, you know, that car went from bone stock with probably the world's most God awful wheels and terrible taillights to a fairly, I would say decent looking Terminator clone when it, you know, finally met its ultimate demise 10 years later. Hit the wall at 120. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't be talking to you. (laughs) Try, uh, try a couple trees at 45. Still don't. It was a, it was a sweet drift while it lasted. (laughs) All of, all of 10 seconds. (laughs) <laughs> not not even intentional drift those are the best kind man you don't have to keep uh doing the excel spreadsheet of that car anymore oh god i still have that it, it's this it's it's kind of depressing looking at it now like how much money i i had spent over that in 10 years had i put that money aside you know could have been you know into like indeterminated money basically if you know getting into one if I'd saved it yeah, you know, by the time 10 years later. 10 years before, would you even have still been interested in, wow. in cars at that point? Because what would you have done? You would have spent that money on something else. You know, it, it, that money wasn't going to be there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hard. Yeah. Hard to say, you know, if, if I wasn't spending it on that, it would have went somewhere else, you know, some other hobby or whatever, you know? Yeah. Uh... Yeah, because that, yeah, that, that had a full tubular front suspension by the time you were done. When it, that right? car was done, there was nothing, mm, yeah, nothing stock on that car aside from basically the fenders. Fenders and cheap metal was about the only thing that did not get messed with at some point. Am I correct in saying that you blew up two 7.5 uh, rear axles before you got your 8.8? Yep. First one was the open diff. That one didn't take long to grenade. 
So we took took that out, put a posi kit in the seven five, um, put four tens in it, and that was significantly more fun putting four tens in it. At that point, it was, you know, it felt like a you know a, a wider, quicker accelerating car that you know not a lot of horsepower in it. Four tens really gave it a kick. That lasted a couple of years, and then we blew that up too. And that's when you went to the proper eight point eight. Yeah, the yeah we went to the eight eight and completely built a a complete eight eight for it instead, which is the right way to do it. The seven five was just the you know we had it and it was cheap to just throw a posi kit in the stock seven five. But the second time we blew it up, we blew it up good. So it's like, well, we'll just go find ourselves a proper eight eight and build that one up. And that one that one held up in its entire life at that point. Speaking of builds, uh, when I met you. Um, you were not driving a Mustang at the time. It was in pieces at your uncle's shop. Oh yeah, that was, um, I'm pretty sure that's when we were building the motor, right, Jeff? I think so. Yeah. Cause I was, I was between the, at that point it was between the lightning and the escort and I was driving around. Yeah. You were building a stroker kit on it, the uh, 4.3 from the 3.8. Right, right. And it was still in process um, when I when I met you. Right, because, yeah, I remember the night. Yeah, the night we met, we were out driving out in the gorge, and I had the lightning that night. Yeah, and you blew a, a, a vacuum hose <laughs> off. vacuum off. off. That was fun. I thought you were going to lay an egg. You were so stressed out. I thought so, too. Yeah, I, that, that car was so much fun. I, I loved having... Uh, you know, my, my two best friends of the forum, I could beat at the track with my, with my bot car. Andy, <laughs> I had by a 10th. Jeff, I had by, had by, uh, I don't know. Second and a half. Seconds. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit more. Automatic Fox bodies are not fast. Hey, you were running the 16s with those, uh, EG Hatch Civics. I was 15.5. Okay. <laughs> Every single time. Here's 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 the drastic comparison. So the so the Fobra or the Six or whatever you want to call it, when I had it in stock trim was running sixteen twenties, hmm. and that was consistent. I ever ran that car when I that car was running sixteen twenties is when I was cutting perfect lights at PIR. Yeah, well, that was automatic. It was you know it, just hold the stall at a certain point. And just right, yeah. We had I had a thirty two hundred stall converter in it, and I just hold the stall, and basically that was the name of the game. Was like I said, consistency, just taking shots at the tree. I knew I was going to lose to everybody I wind up next to, but that wasn't the point. Really, I didn't care. It was a time trial against your your you know yeah. previous week. Exactly, yeah. Because you know, if you're talking you know bracket racing, you're talking about running against dial-ins. So that was kind of where I was trying to you know get something set up to run into like a class like that you know if you're running against your dial number you're not necessarily running against the guy next to you you're running for consistency yeah and play your car to your strengths i mean don't don't get a miata and take it to the drag strip you know don't get a uh a cobra jet and try to you know do the autocross it <laughs> right yeah exactly and when that car minutes demise i'd never it never cracked 13 at the track but it was consistently right at the 14 O's. I mean, yeah, because you were you were right for ten years. That car, without going to boost, that car went two and a half, two point two seconds faster 
without going yeah, boost. Everyone says it's oh, it's not worth just just boost it or just get a bigger car, which is one way to go. But the journey that you had is probably worth worth the price of admission. And it was still it was still comparable at that point with some other stuff. With you know, it was running against you know RX eights, a couple uh, I think E thirties, E thirty sixes was you know com- comparative with. Yeah, because I know I mean. I know I was racing against, um, you know, Hawkeye WRXs, uh, you know, because driver mod, but, uh, and so that means that you were right there with them too. Cause I mean, we were a tenth. like I, if I glanced out of the corner of my eye at the end of the quarter, you were still, I could see you, you were right there, you know. And you did beat you did beat me a couple of times. And that car was never it never got a proper drag setup either because, like I said, it had that that poor binding suspension. So my sixty foot times were terrible with that car. But the gear setup and everything basically once you know it got moving, it compensated. You know, it probably could it you know if I had ever fixed the rear suspension properly, done the the panhard and torque arm on it, you know, it would have been the thirteen you know high 13 second car i'm sure you know get the getting the 60 foot time down you did a lot of uh a lot of body modifications we haven't even talked about what it looked like i mean that was a gorgeous car and it went through so many different iterations i mean from when you got it from when i first saw it and it's final it it there's three different cars at least uh visually and the whole interior you ripped out the back seat put a proper delete in the back seat there was a sub there was you changed out the whole dash with the uh 01 to 04 uh center console like you did a lot of interior and exterior work to that too that should be stated yeah interior yeah i mean i had the whole so a lot of people did, you know, the, on on those cars, you know, the the door poles, the dash kit, um, you know, around your gauge cluster and your your HVAC and shifter console. All I had all that painted to match the body color. Um, you know, the the console swap, the the ninety nine two thousand console was kind of just terrible. And when uh, there was a gorgeous Amazon green too, it's one of the best greens they have. I still have the parts in my garage. Really? Yeah, I still have all the Amazon green, you know, uh, parts in the garage. I don't know how it would look wind up next to an electric now, but yeah, I still have it all. Yeah, it was it was, it was a really pretty color. I was a fan. Yeah, yeah. It was a nice color and yeah, like you said it had the seat delete in it and the console swap everything kind of made it a little bit, you know, nicer little easy things to kind of do, change around to make it, you know, you know, creature comforts, you know, more ergonomic, you know, because that, that car, its entire life was basically a daily driver still. Yeah, and so that thing would have started with all stock body panels and lights and stuff, except the Altezas in the back, and was that the only body mod on the exterior when you got it? Oh, no, that was my doing. That was my oh, mess up. you know, I did the same thing. Because the, the factory taillights on it where the chrome had peeled off so much that they weren't hardly like, it was like dangerous to the point where you couldn't really, you know, like it was just like a, a bulb in the housing. It wasn't really doing any reflecting when I got it. And they were just, they were just taking on water like crazy. So I ditched the stock ones and uh, made the ultimate wrong choice of buying those from American Muscle. 
think it was properly at the time it was Mustang tuning back then. Well, yeah, it was it wasn't a mistake then. It was a mistake two years later, but at the time, oh sure, that was yeah. cool. I mean, I had the same ones. Those and those uh, uh, chrome wheels you had on there, those 18s that look like uh, fan blades. Those like fan blade looking yeah. turbine. You would have been at home. least a five star ride on Need for Speed Underground. Oh, oh dude, yeah. maybe <laughs> maybe six. Yeah. If I I just add some underglow. You needed too. some underglow and a roof scoop, and you probably would have been there. Probably right on the cusp yeah, there. You you had the the. Terminator Cobra hood, which is the flat with the two uh, vents on the hood, uh, and the back bumper was a Cobra bumper with chrome, like sticker letters stuck into yeah. the, what usually is the cutout that says Cobra, and the front bumper was a uh, a Roush New Edge bumper. I don't remember if the uh... yes, the the front was the Roush Sage Three front bumper and then yeah you're right the 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 terminator hood and rear bumper and it had those this the stainless steel insert letters in the back that said cobra basically telling the world hey look it's a yeah, cobra that, but it's they, not they kind of worked because they tied into the wheels and so like i yeah at that time i believe we i believe we had the 10th anniversaries on at that point the chrome 10th anniversary kind of matched yeah, up over nicely the, over the years you slowly went to kind of a black theme yeah we we went away from flashy and went to went to dark yeah we eventually yeah got rid of the chrome bumper letters went to black went to black wheels you know all the bright accents on the car went to black basically instead and that's what really made the car kind of pop got rid of the the tacky looking chrome you know that was kind of the thing and the you know Early mid two thousands, there was whatnot. a night in you know, that uh, Washington pretty quick, and where you had replaced the automatic with a five speed, which is a good upgrade, but you had kept the elect the uh, uh, keyless start that had been on it, the remote start. You want to oh. go ahead and tell that story? That's a fun thing to have on the internet. For uh, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't there for that. Do I have to? Uh, I was in college for that, but I... No, so... You've probably heard variations of this. You've probably heard a variation of the story at some point, but yeah, so we were at a buddy's place up in Vancouver, and the keyless start, it had a remote start set up on it that I had put on it years prior when it had the automatic, so which was kind of handy, but it was kind of janky, and it never really worked perfectly, and... This was installed by now defunct Circuit City, so you can tell you the quality of craftsmanship there. Um, so eventually, you know, we did the five-speed swap, and I, um, we kept using it, and we just bypassed the neutral safety switch on it, so we could still use it as long as you left the car out of gear. I ended up just never using it because the alarm system ended up not working right or going off all the time, so I just kind of quit using it, and... I would just use the lock and unlock function, basically, which seemed to still work fine. And so one night, we're up at our buddy's place in Vancouver. And so we're going out. Uh, we were leaving his place to go out um, somewhere or another irrelevant to the store. And so the car is parked in the street with the five-speed in it, just sitting in gear, 
with the e-brake on and the, you know, like I said, we've not hadn't used the remote start function in years probably. Hit the unlock button and the car goes beep, 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 beep. And I was like, what the heck? Looked over at Randy, looked back at the car and the car started, took off in first gear and rear-ended the SVT Focus in that was parked in front of it. And now you have an SVT Focus in the same color. And now, and now I have a similar SVT focus, ironically enough, yes. But so this, the, the, whole, the whole thing is hilarious because of the timing of this. So about a month earlier, um, I was, I had the car out, was going to work or school or something like early one morning and there was some black ice at the bottom of a hill. Long story short, car kind of came around and the front end ate a curb messed up this this is the point where the car kind of got coilovers and a little bit of you know upgrade at the front because it knocked out a good bit of the front suspension you know the bumper shocks knocked it out so um at this point i went and bought a the 0304 matching cobra bumper for the front so that now it the whole car is kind of going to instead of kind of like a you know kit from this kit from that to more of a complete clone and that's kind of the direction i was taking the car then um you know kind of embracing the FOBRA moniker it took on, but, um, you know, trying to make it look like a, a you know, a, a representable clone, at least, you know, then it, it looked decent. Everybody knew it wasn't, you know, you could hear it from the sound, but that was the point. So we had just got, I had just got the new bumper put on the front, just got painted probably a week prior. Um, and I hadn't replaced the, the bumper, the, you know, the, the like styrofoam bumper impact little piece that goes behind the bumper in front of the steel bumper. And so ironically enough, when the car took off, hit the SVT in front of it, it didn't damage the SVT at all. It just, in the, the, the ABS plastic bumper, Cobra bumper just basically imploded and it stopped at that point. Yeah, that was, that's pretty, uh, pretty good. Pretty lucky. I mean, it's a bummer that you lost the bumper, but fact there was no damage done to the other vehicle and you still had the styrofoam all you had to get was a bumper cover it's about as well as that could go all you had to give it a bumper cover and it worked out because the one i put on there was you know an aftermarket repop and i found a, an oem cover after that for dirt cheap too um because it didn't have the chin spoiler yet and i ended up finding the oem front cover with the chin spoiler cheaper than i bought the market one to start with so i was like okay well that's a no-brainer that up had that painted and put back on properly um but yeah that was that was fun and not fun at the same time but that, yeah after that you know we got the new cover put it on and at that point um i couldn't tell you which wheels it had at that point if it had the the o3 wheels or if i had the drifts at that point yet but um kind of went whole car kind of went to full kind of Cobra clone looking at that point. And, you know, looking at it, you really wouldn't know. Cause at that point, you know, the, the hood, the front bumper, the rear bumper was done. We had the, the duckbill spoiler that was all appropriate for the O3, the, the right side scoops, the rocker panels for it. The only thing that car didn't have from the O3 was the side mirrors. That was the only way you could tell that car wasn't an O3. All right, so we'll uh, move on to topics. Uh, one thing I came up with was uh, uh, Ford has discontinued its uh, its sedans. They're in you know they're phasing them out now, and there was an article 
stating why it's important that Lincoln not follow suit because, you know, uh, as popular as SUVs are in the luxury market, that's where there's still a spot for sedans. And I, I was always the, uh, the guy, the, you know, the guy growing up from 17 to 21 when I had uh, my first kid that was very much on the side of just get a wagon. Why are people buying SUVs? Just get a wagon because they're so much more efficient. They're more fun. They look better. You know, I wanted nothing more than a five series wagon, which I'm close to now. Um, but I just didn't understand SUVs. And so having, having done both, we, uh, when my son was, uh, was born, we purchased a 2012 Ford Focus wagon, um, a five-door hatch, whatever you want to call it. And it was a good car. Um, I mean, it got great mileage. It got about 30 miles to the gallon. It was coming from a uh, 2004 Ford Ranger uh, two-door extended cab uh, to that. It had all sorts of neat things like um, power locks, power windows. So, 2012 Focus. It was it was good because it had all types of fancy things that my Ranger didn't have, like power locks, power windows, and um, you know my wife's car was uh, you know no better before that. It was a 04 Chevy Classic, which is a Malibu, but it's a fleet model. But it was a fleet model, so it had less options than a base model. So that's fun. And uh, being a salvage title vehicle that had been reconstructed, the trunk leaked. There was a swimming pool back there. So we uh, we had one as a rental. We had a Focus, and so we, we went ahead and got one, 9,000 miles. And we drove that until recently. Um, we've gone through now a 2010 Escape. Uh, that we just moved on to replace with our current 2011 BMW X5 diesel. And starting with the wagon and going through consecutively bigger SUVs, I would say for me, the reason that people are buying SUVs come down to about three things. It's the seating position being higher. The ability to see more around you is vastly underrated by enthusiasts like myself i didn't think it was such a big deal but you know having started in a truck and then going to the mustang and then you know getting this focus and then getting suvs you can you can tell it it's it's noticeable to be able to see around you when you've got you know kids yelling in the back it it definitely oh definitely Um, yeah i mean it's it's noticeably different when i come home from you know when i get out of my tundra and I jump in my focus to go run an errand or something. It's noticeably different. Yeah. And I'd say it's, it's more fun to be down in a little car because uh, Jeff owns three coupes and a two door SUV. So he'll, he'll be able to speak on the height thing though here for sure. Uh, it's more, more fun to kind of drive in the cockpit down in the car, but being up, in a, a truck or an SUV, being able to see around you is 
is nice even though everyone else has suvs you'd think it would block the view but it really doesn't work yeah you know is i mean I, I i would agree with you know the comfort and, and seeing like driving my tundra every day that i have my work truck tundra not to me tundra but um you know driving that around it's comfortable i can see out of it clearly it's you know it's nice it's easy to drive it is you know a truck but you know it is i would say you know easier driving and you know the line of sight you know seeing out of it and everything is easier better um than if i were to say jump in my you know two-door hatchback focus you know driving that around it's like i'm the little guy on the road now but the trade-off is obviously you know your driving experience you know it's they're drastically different cars they're two purpose-built things you know in a different realm but their own they're both fun to drive in their own respect yeah so jeff what do you you have you do have the bronco um so what are your thoughts on seating position and and height and uh, the command seating position that they that they talk about um i i i really like the feeling of being in a in a truck for again just to kind of echo what you've said is the comfort um it's really nice just to kind of it puts you in a more laid back um place you know you're less stressed you're off the road you're kind of away from that i don't know maybe it's a physical barrier from the stressors of driving even you know you're a little bit off the road you're a little away from the other people um i don't know maybe there's something to do there but i i do feel that substantially and then you know uh I think NVH and some of those things have a lot to do with it as well. You know, my, my Bronco seems to be a little more insulated than my other vehicles from road noise. So cruising down the road, sitting in traffic, whatever, I'm, I'm pretty laid back in my truck. I'm pretty comfortable where, you know, whereas in my Chevy, you know, it's one, it's fast and two, it's loud. And so all it makes me want to do is get out of wherever I'm at and pass everyone that I can. Um, you know, uh, so I don't know, very different experience between all my vehicles driving them. You know, a lot of it has to do with the, the like driving the Falcon. I'm really comfortable. I'm really relaxed. It's, it's a quiet, it's a soft car, you know? Um, but driving the Bronco, I have a similar experience, but it's, it's even less stressful. You know, it's just, you're kind of that command seating position is, is a nice place to be. So do you do you think we're all in agreement here that um, we certainly think that that's one of the main reasons why people are buying SUVs and, and no longer buying sedans? That and uh, safety, I think. Um, there's there's a guy on YouTube, Casey Casey's Garage or Genius Garage, something like that. He, uh, he talked about this a little bit, and it's something I've thought about for a while. But um, if you think about, you know, the element of safety and why people think SUVs and trucks and yada yada are safer, uh, a lot of it has to do with, you know, you're, you're in a bigger vehicle, right? That, that notion that, you know, you're in a bigger vehicle. Well, again, you're only, it's only going to be relative to those things around you. The inertia only goes so far. And if everyone else has large amount of inertia or the same amount of inertia as you, it doesn't matter, um, that, you know, you're in a big safe quote unquote vehicle, you know, the people around you are still the same size as you, you know, so it can, it can grow into this escalating, you know, uh, battle of, Oh, mine's bigger. So I'm safer. I'm bigger. So I'm safer kind of thing. Um, 
And I think a lot of that maybe could be a result of, uh, of some, some of the distractions we face nowadays driving a lot of people are on their phones, a lot of in-car entertainment, you know, accidents happen more often. So people think that driving is more dangerous. There's more people on the road. People aren't paying as, as close attention to driving as they were. Car technology has gotten to the point where it's so, you know, so overwhelmingly good that, you know, people stop relying on their senses to tell them what to do. They rely on sensors or feedback from the vehicle or, Hey, I can stop at the last minute or, Oh, it's got all wheel drive. And, you know, uh, it can detect slip at all the wheels. So I'm not worried about snow. And so I'm going to go faster around this corner. Like people just don't use their head. Like they did, you know, 15, 20 years ago when cars were a little more analog in that respect. So I think that, you get into this this concern over safety. You get into this escalating, like, I need a bigger car. I need a bigger car. I need a bigger car because they're safer. It's not necessarily the case. Unfortunately, it is. we are, I mean, it is the case, I should say, but it shouldn't be the case uh, would be a good argument. I think it if people would just pay a little more attention while they were driving, um, collectively as a whole, and we stopped introducing so many distractions into our driving habits, we wouldn't have the accidents and the issues that we see, and people wouldn't feel the need and feel unsafe in cars as opposed to trucks. Sorry for the ramble and the rant, but... No, that's good. Um, what do you think, Andy? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of brings up two points that I'll hit on, too. I you know, 100% agree. You know, you're, Everything's new. There's more of this, more of that, but... Um, you know, you're losing some of that old school kind of, you know, um, you know, engagement with the car and, you know, actually the act of driving, you know, assistant, this assistant, that blah, 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 you know, my, the two things I'll touch on and kind of briefly one being, um, automatic lights being everybody, you know, wants automatic lights cause they don't want to think about it. But I think it's to me personally, it's kind of a, Silly, I'll say stupid idea because I see more people driving at night with, you know, no, either no lights on or, you know, just their DLRs or, um, or DRLs, whatever you want to call them, daytime running lights, um, you know, or no lights at all. And they just, you know, people are assuming that their lights are on until they get, you know, away from the cities and whatnot and, you know, realize, oh, well, they can't see because their lights aren't on, you know no you know no there's just no thought to it i i i'll cop to that happening to me once or twice because uh uh the ranger the mustang had manual lights now the five series has manual lights but the the focus the escape and now the x5 uh all have automatic lights and i've been caught with my lights off I can say three or four times in the years I've had those vehicles, that's not bad over the 150,000 miles I've driven those, those vehicles, but, but it still happens and it's still dangerous. And I do see brand new vehicles and I know sometimes someone drives it and they turn the lights all the way off, off of automatic. That's a huge pet peeve for me, but I, I think you guys have a point. I have, I now have a vehicle with so many sensors and so many doodads and gizmos that I'm really seeing um, the problem with some of it. Some of it is good. The automatic wipers, I think, are wonderful. There's no need for me to be 
monkeying with the intermittent wipers if it can find the right uh, amount. I've seen good and I've seen bad versions of intermittent wipers. That's the, as far as, you know, if done properly and they work right, you know, then great. But I've seen like older versions of them, you know, like not run consistently to the point where I've driven vehicles that had them that absolutely drove me bonkers to the point where it was only controlled by, you know, how much it, you know, moisture was hitting the windshield. And the only option, there was no intermittent option. It was either on and, you know, the sensors were controlling it or it was, you know, constant, you know, high speed. And that was to the point where I would just turn it off and run it manually by hand. At that point, it's kind of dangerous. Right, exactly, exactly. And, it, you know, long story short, you know, it can be done well, it can be done not well. I just, I think I was more thinking that's kind of what we should be chasing as far as uh, convenience tech and safety tech. Um, I think that I like the idea of some of these nannies for people that don't want to drive the auto stop, the, you know, that, that sort of thing, the lane keep assist. But the problem is that people go, oh, like you said, I don't have to drive anymore. I can just rely on these systems. And that's when it becomes a problem is these cars are safer and they will drive it for you. But if you start taking advantage of that and not paying attention, that's when people die. Right. And and that leads me to actually a commercial I heard on the radio here today from Alexis. Yes, I will throw them under the bus because I thought this was the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Buy the new, you know, Alexis, you know, whatever model SUV, right? You know, some RX three fifty, probably. No, I want to say it was like some it was like a it was like a single letter and a single number moniker of some sort. Oh. Um but regardless. Um, I could be wrong. It could have, it might've been, um, infinity. I want to say it was like, like a Q7 or something, regardless, um, regardless of the manufacturer. So they're boasting, you know, buy, you know, come buy, you know, a brand new $80,000 high-end luxury SUV because it has all these features, all these nannies, auto lights, all this. And, you know, being it's, it's December in Boise, you know, snow's been and gone and coming again. So they're, talking about snow, obviously, you know, well, come, you know, come down buy this SUV because it's got auto braking. It's got their, uh, it might've been Audi because they were talking about their Quattro all wheel drive and all this. And you're that would be Audi in, the, yeah. in the snow with their, their all wheel drive. Yeah. If they come to think of it, it was probably Audi. Um, you know, and you know, just, you know, you've got this all wheel drive and you're impenetrable in the snow and you can do anything. And We've all seen how snowpocalypse in Portland works. You know, everybody thinks they're invincible because they've got all these nannies. And guess what? You have eight-hour traffic blockages to get out of a city to get five miles to go home. All these people think yeah. they're invincible. And I, I think that's just blatantly misleading and wrong. You know, to go come buy this $80,000 SUV, you can go anywhere with it. Where, whereas, yeah. as you know, I was passing people in these $80,000 SUVs, in a $1,500 Focus with a set of four studded tires going up a 20-degree incline hill, whereas all these people were stuck. And I, they should have I, to and say I just, with proper All you people getting stuck in these, properly you know. Probably trained driver can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you're, 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 you're creating, you know, the bad, um, you know, the bad mindset that you, know, you can just do, you know, you don't have to learn, you know, how to really drive, how to, you know, 
read these situations and driving, you know, all of these, you know, nannies and assistants are going to do everything for you. And, you know, the Tesla is going to, the one I saw yesterday, um, this um, person driving a Tesla um, ended up crashing into a police vehicle that was, you know, on a traffic stop. The Model 3. Yeah, yeah, Model 3, right. Because the guy was just sitting there on autopilot thinking the car's going to drive itself, and it drove itself straight into a police car on the, on the side of the highway. And Yep, and Tesla tries to tell people, hey, this is yeah, not... Yeah, they say this, this is not a self-driving car. And they, they, you know, they make... You know, it's no no fault on Tesla for that. It's 100%, you know, user error at that point. You know, was, well... I'm a huge Tesla fan, but I don't think they should call it, call it autopilot and then tell people to not go on autopilot. Right. Autopilot's a bad a name for it. Step. You know, it's it's driver it's a driver assist. You know, it, it shouldn't be autopilot. And you know, it, I'll jump in it and, super, uh, super I'll jump in and blame the uh, I'll, I'll blame the companies who who create this kind of stuff um, rather than user error. Right? I mean, people are expected to behave in a very predictable way um, they have user groups test groups study groups that evaluate nothing but user behavior user data is the most valuable resource and the most mind resource of the modern uh, world right now so to to say that you know I can't I can't blame people for doing what the program what they're what they are accustomed to the program doing and then when it behaves unpredictably, like not avoiding a car when in every other incident it stops for for traffic, it turns, it does everything it needs to do, and then the one time it doesn't, to blame user error, I think is is not is not fair. I think that that is a complete shortcoming of the company for not for for creating a system that enables that to happen. You either create the system to work entirely one way. You don't you don't want to create these gray areas where oh well you're kind of in in control but the system's kind of in control right you like people get lulled into that sense of okay I need to let this thing do its this let it run its program and do its thing I'm hands off their attention fades from what's actually going on because the program is supposed to be controlling it um, you know it it's not I, I think that that falls entirely on the company um, to to do to to create something that's a, a good user experience that either delivers it or doesn't like make it safe and that that to me that example right there is not yeah that's right that, I, that, I, I agree i mean that's that's fair you know part of it is you know we kind of are in that you know area of where technology is rapidly evolving and you know where you know companies you know like tesla they're pushing out technology to, you know, try, you know, they want to be front runners. So you want to, you know, have all these advancements and everything. Whereas it's, you're right. It's not a perfect system. So, um, you know, there's, there's good points on both sides, but yeah, it's, you know, people, you know, like the autopilot system, you know, you're advertising it as more or less that, and that's what people are going to expect. So that's, like you said, that kind of false sense of reliability that they're going to expect. It's it's almost like your your uh, four wheel drive system, right? It's like, well, it may be four wheel drive sometimes, but if you're expecting it to be four wheel drive when you when you say four wheel drive, and then it's not, and you slide off the road, and they say, well, that was user error because I mean we can't expect four wheel drive to work all the time. That's the way we designed the system. Like, 
then you're just kind of using the user as a patsy for your shortcoming of your system, right? Like that, that, that to me is a failing of the company, not develop, designing a, a thoroughly thought out or a, or a finished product um, and, and so passing that you, blame. You bring to up an, an interesting thing here. Uh, so I think Andy and I are more saying marketing. It feels like you're more saying the product Here's here's a, a fun thought I just had. You mentioned four wheel drive. Now, four wheel drive is a load of a load of garbage. Cause how many four wheel drive vehicles sold in the US come from the factory with four wheel drive? Pretty much none of them. Maybe a Wrangler. Generally they're they're you know four wheel drive until one slips, then all the power goes to the slipping wheel. And you don't have proper four-wheel drive because it's not locked. There's no front-limited slip. There's you know, there's no proper differential. And and all-wheel drives are are a, kind of a loophole measure, where oh they're all being driven except it's all only the the one with the least amount of grip. So, is it still irresponsible for a Ford or Chevy or Dodge to say oh we have a four-wheel drive truck? But then you get stuck on a trail and only two of the wheels are, are spinning and the other ones are stopped. That's not really four-wheel drive. So is that the fault of Chevy and Ford for not producing a proper product or for not uh, educating their customers? Because that's been around for 50 years, 70 years. Well, that's four-wheel drive in a... Uh in an ideal situation and in probably 99% of use cases, it is four wheel drive, right? Torque is being applied to all four wheels in most cases when that is engaged, except in extreme limits of traction, right? Then the, then the mechanical system itself breaks down to the point where you, you show the, the limitations of the system mechanics. Yeah, but they show the vehicles crawling all through rocks and they show them in extreme conditions where if not properly trained, you can easily beach that 8,000 pound full size pickup and just have the two wheels spinning. So, you know, how is that different than showing, uh, here's the new Volvo uh, AccuSafe system that will keep, you'll never run over a pedestrian no matter what you do. You know, not to say that that's not irresponsible or more irresponsible, but is it the same issue or am I making something where there is nothing? You know, I don't know. That's a, okay. I'll, I'll go off my, uh, off my gut feel right now. Um, I think we're getting into like this kind of gray area of claims and extremes where you think of, okay, a company is marketing to this. They're claiming this, they're claiming X when they're really, they're delivering something that's, kind of X, but not really like kind of autopilot, kind of four wheel drive, but maybe not really. And to what degree is that acceptable? And what, what amount are we willing to tolerate as uh, consumers, right? In, in regards to vehicle purchasing, um, you know, so you, you buy a 700 horsepower Hellcat and a dyno's at 650 or something like that, kind of a similar situation. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, four-wheel drive i mean it's still super capable it's more capable than a rear-wheel drive vehicle but it's maybe not exactly four-wheel drive in every situation um you know same with the horsepower figure and same with autopilot like at what point does it become something that we 
as consumers say, hey, this is this is not safe. This is like, is, is it safety? Is it is it are we buying this vehicle expecting A and getting B? You know, uh, that, that's a great question. And I think that that might be uh, kind of similar to to people. I think that might be up to the user and the individual to determine, OK, I can live with this amount of BS but I can't live with, you know, this other situation that's BS. Like I have to have 700 horsepower like that. I can't live with under 700 horsepower, which, you know, is not really the case, but maybe that's, that's not acceptable to people, but, you know, having something that's claiming four wheel drive, but it really only drives two wheels in the worst case, it it is acceptable. Um, You know? Um, And again, then we're also looking at things like marketing terminology and familiarity, right? So, for years, yeah. to your point, four-wheel drive has been marketed since the 50s, since, you know, NAPCO came out with their four-wheel drive kits for trucks, uh, for the Chevys in the in the 50s. So you think of familiarity of phrasing maybe has something to do with some of that, some of those early, early names and early things that have come out, um, you know, that have been ingrained in our culture for so long have never left despite, you know, advancements in technology that deliver true four-wheel drive systems, whereas untrue, you know, four-wheel drive, quote-unquote two-wheel drive, whatever systems that don't truly drive all four wheels are still called four-wheel drive in the same way that a true four-wheel drive system is called four-wheel drive. So I think maybe there's some some type of uh, interesting, you know, um, uh, social uh, kind of buildup of all these different terms that we've created over the years yeah. and as things have evolved maybe we're we're marketing to that because it's familiar and that's what people recognize so what about the term autopilot then to bring it to kind of bring it back to where we're trying to go um autopilot has a term colloquially right like when you think autopilot i imagine uh i'm i'm up in the cockpit of a plane and the pilot goes, oh, I'm going to turn on autopilot. He flips a switch, and then he leaves the seat and, you know, goes goes to the head or something. And that's what I imagine. So when I think, oh, my car has autopilot, I press a button, and then the wheel turns on its own, and the pedals do their own thing, I'm thinking I'm done because that's, that's what that phrasing means to me. And maybe not that um, Tesla is picking the wrong terminology so much as we have an ingrained idea of what that term means versus super cruise on the Chevys where what does that mean oh that means it's like cruise control but a little bit more seems to be more appropriate for what the vehicle does so I think maybe that's kind of more what we're what we're uh, what we're looking at is not semantics but thinking about what words mean and instead of trying to choose the one that's going to sell the car which is their job picking one that is more accurate to the vehicle's abilities no i I think you you've hit on a really good point um you know in in the case of tesla with the autopilot i think it actually the the nomenclature that they're choosing to adopt with autopilot autopilot being the name of, of what their, uh, of their guided driving system, uh, actually has in itself created a safety issue. Um, kind of, you know, at what point do these, do these names end up 
being no longer acceptable? Like, are they, is it, it, is there some responsibility there, some corporate, some ethical responsibility to come up with something or to pay attention to that kind of thing where, you know, like to your point, Chevy's calling it uh, super cruise. Like that seems something that's perfectly reasonable. Like you say, okay, it's, it's a, it's a better cruise control. It does something different, but you're expecting it to behave as a guided system. Whereas autopilot to your point, you expect it to behave as something that is completely hands off. It is autonomous. It is autonomous, autonomously piloting your vehicle, which is what autopilot is. So you should not have to, um, to engage in the vehicle control at that point. Right. So that's kind of how things are supposed to behave and calling it something that it isn't is, is a little bit deceitful at, 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 uh, at best and, and dangerous in this case at worst. So, um, you know, I don't know, that's kind of an interesting topic, you know, and, and I mean, in the history of marketing and, and cars and everything, I mean, there's been all types of, shady marketing gimmicks and things just to sell cars so you know not to yeah yeah totally and and it's and personally i find it pretty revolting that they do some of this stuff but you know um it, it is i mean that you know talking specifically about tesla as an autopilot that's what sells teslas everybody wants autopilot you know that's the whole I would venture to say 80% of the draw for Tesla's is everybody wants autopilot and it's, you know, and they're, you know, they're rolling out updates and everything now to make it less of a, you know, Oh yeah, it's autopilot, but you know, you've got to put your hands in the steering wheel every five minutes or something or another and they'll roll out updates and making it less now. So there's more user accountability, but they're still calling it autopilot so that they're maintaining that marketing chip you know above everybody else nobody else has autopilot by a tesla but you're right it's a flawed system i would rather have you know personally i would buy a tesla i would be more inclined to buy a tesla if it had something like super cruise or you know more of a of a you know enhanced cruise control system versus an autonomous system in it and what if well, here, here's a question for you the what same if, system yeah that, that's exactly i think you're going exactly the, down the path i was going randy is if I were to say, if, if Tesla were to call their system Super Cruise, would you still, would you, would you engage with the system in a different way? See, I don't think I would, but uh, we're, again, we're three enthusiasts sitting around a table. We read the news and, you know, I, I'm, I'm a follower. I know all about the Tesla stuff, so I know the differences. But I think the layman, if you said, do you want a car with super cruise as a uh what what would they call it um uh, assistive driving mode uh would you rather have super cruise or autopilot someone's gonna go oh well super cruise sounds like cruise control but it'll also do lane departure and but but autopilot why drive if i can just press a button i i think that's exactly the point is that sounds like it's done. It's finished. Full stage three autonomy, and I think that's gonna. Sell. That's what it comes across as. as I hundred percent agree. That's what it comes across as. I think that this is a glaring example of where uh, a a good consumer insights group is needed to conduct these type of studies, where they can learn. Okay, 
One, what sells the product? Obviously, autopilot is what sells it. What do people expect the feature to do with these different names under these case studies? And that would have told Tesla that, hey, you know, maybe this isn't the appropriate name for this because people expect it to do something that it doesn't do and it is not capable to do. Or what could be worse is Tesla did do those studies and did know that and then chose to produce it anyway with that name. I'm not saying that that's the case, but I'm saying that that is an option that could have happened. But I think that I think it's a highly likely option. Look at who's running Tesla. Look at all the stuff Elon is into. It all started with Tesla. You know how many other side projects are there now? The money they made that he's made from Tesla. Now we're going. We're sending stuff to Mars. We're talking. He's talking about colonizing Mars. I think I'm gonna Elon I'm gonna playing go a longer and, uh, game. That's that's not really how that works. He hasn't made money on Tesla. He has pumped hundreds of millions of dollars of his own money into the company. So Elon hasn't made profited a dime. He's still millions personally of his of his personal bank account in the red from that. He's made more money off of the boring company and somehow he's made more money on SpaceX than he has on Tesla. Yeah, just so you know, they I mean they're they finally put like two quarters together where they made a profit and they're starting to become profitable. But I mean, he's been pouring money into this since 2010 of his own money because he started on PayPal. PayPal, That's where his money initially came from. So SolarCity and SpaceX and Tesla and all of that have come later from money he made before. Yeah, Tesla has been a, uh, a money sink for him, but he does it because, well, as was discussed earlier, he is a space alien trying to make it home. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I'll, re- I'll redact. But I, I do think you're right about the rest of it. I think, but I think if any company would have done the the research that Jeff said they should do, they would have looked at the results and gone, okay, so which of these names not is going to be the most accurate for what we have, but which one excited people and made them want to buy the car. And I think sadly that's the metric they would go with because, you know, we are, it is a capitalist society. That's the one they would go with versus which one is the most accurate to what our customers. would. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense to me. Your fault. You're we're basically circling back around to what we started with. You know, it's, it's marketing one on one. You know that's that's what's going to sell. That's what they're going to do. Um, I, this has probably been out for a couple of weeks now, but um, I want to say it was like a a, a, a little kid. Uh, like I want to say like she was in like high school, like a freshman in high school or something. Came up with a a, a real time system to get rid of your A pillar blind spots by putting you know micro sized cameras on the outside of the vehicles and. And projecting the real time feed onto that B pillar as a screen versus just having blind spots. You know what? I know Jeff's going to hate that, but I think having that visibility is huge because they already have that on uh, Land Rovers. Uh, They put that over the hood. They have a camera that looks, and then it'll show you on your heads up 
what it would look like if you could see through your hood which for four-wheeling is just a miracle you know where to put your wheels I think people would drive a little slower and safer if they had the threat of being impaled on their own steering column uh, looming in in front of their face every day, like I do. Which which is why we don't have giant ship anchor steering wheels and solid steel dashes anymore, though. Hey, man, no, I'm just I'm just saying it it drives uh, it drives human behavior. Fear will drive human behavior, and that, if they were afraid true. that they were not going to, they wouldn't pick up that phone and text that person in fear that they would uh, get impaled on their own column. That's the helmet theory in NFL is that there's too many, too much pads in the NFL and everything's too good. Every time that they update the safety in the NFL, people just hit harder. And if you went back to the, to the leather helmets that people wouldn't hit each other as hard and there'd be less injuries that, which it's just a theory. And I've, I've heard good arguments either way, but I, I think, Jeff does have a point and that kind of circles back around where we started, which is, you know, too many nannies makes people lazy and they forget that they're driving a 4,000 to 8,000 pound speeding bullet down the road. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. They let us have these. There, there's, there's a certain elegance to, to older, to, you know, kind of, you know, Jeff's realm to my realm to new realm, you know, as far as technology and, you know, what's good, what's bad, you know, being, you know, I, I could have easily went to when the FOBR met its demise to, you know, at the time, um, you know, 2014 GT, something like that. More nannies, more stuff, blah, blah, blah. But I think, you know, it's kind of more my style of, there's a reason I went back to that same generation of the 9904. It's, you know, it's, it's a good, it's a good mix, you know, that car, I mean, it was a relatively hard impact, and I still went and jumped back into the same platform because, you know, it's, I, I, it makes it for reliability and safety still. You know, I, I can I can trust, you know, myself in a similar impact in that car that I can walk away it's from in again. this spot where there's still a lot of electronics, but there's not as many in the, the E90s. The E90s have so much, and there's everything's on a computer. It's got the iDrive, like our X5 does. And it, I decided it was too much for my personal vehicle, but the E39 still has a lot of manual things to it. Yes, it is drive by wire, and yes, it's got sensors to tell me how many miles to empty, and it's got a stopwatch in it, and it tells me, you know, oh, it's below 37 degrees outside. Be careful. Like, that's all nice. And it has automatic wipers, but it's manual lights. And I can shift the transmission on my own. And, you know, there there are certain things I could still work on. And the engine's somewhat accessible. And, you know, not everything's covered in plastic. Uh, bottom of my X5 is the E70 is just all plastic. Literally, it's just all plastic on the bottom. You, you don't see anything. You barely see the steering knuckle. And I decided, you know what, that's the one that I take to the dealership and, and, you know, pay too much for, and I'll be able to work on mine a little bit. And finding that balance, you know, me me and Andy seems to be kind of the early 2000s. We're comfortable with the advancements. Jeff, it seems to be about the Stone Age, a little after Paleolithic. Um, but, you know, everyone has their, their era that, 
that they find is the right balance. And um, that's, that's just kind of car culture. You find your, your, your happy place. Yeah. I, I, I would definitely say so. Yeah. You know, we each kind of have a little bit of our own flavor and you can look at what I've, what I've got, you know, and what I'm still looking for. I'm definitely, you know, the mid two thousands ish era. It's kind of my realm, you know, with what I've got, you know, the, the Cobra now and the, the focus and, you know, if I could, Ideally, if I could pick up a lightning from the same area, I I would be happy. I would have all three kind of, you know, areas of everything I want and need covered at that point. And I'm happy the with Ford, the Ford supercharger heavy area. Yeah, the, the SVT trilogy area. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, no news today. Uh, I think that's I think that's a show. Um, so. Uh, you guys got anything else you want to say to the, to the folks before we uh, jet out of here? Buy vintage cars if you can. They're better. Shameless, shameless plug for SVT focuses. Anybody looking? <laughs> In the Boise area. Boise area. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And uh, I'll, I'll just say uh, the E39 is not overrated. Uh, buy one and love it and sell everything else you have. And I think that's it. Okay, we'll uh, see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Garage Night Podcast. A special thanks for Jeff Tracy and Annie Tamlin for joining the show this week and to Cara Square for allowing us to use their song Blue Skies Blues under the Creative Commons license for the intro and outro of the show. Until next week, keep turning wrenches.